At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Habits, Ancient Practices for Today's World, where we'll learn to reject culture's endless stream of quick fixes for God's time-tested truth. Together, we'll rediscover age-old practices that draw us to Him, where true satisfaction awaits. Richard Easterlin uh, was a professor of economics at the University of Pennsylvania for a long time. He was at USC then, but in the 1970s, he was in the University of Pennsylvania, and he was curious, incessantly curious as an economist about the correlation between economic growth and happiness. And so Easterlin set out to do a study to see if he could find some sort of correlation. And he looked actually at data in the United States about the U.S.'s economic growth in the 50s and 60s, and then sought through surveys and other ways to find correlation into people's happiness. In 1974, Easterlin released a survey where he essentially found that although the U.S. had grown significantly economically in the decades prior to his study, that people's happiness had actually in that time stagnated and even begun to decline. His study would become to be known as Easterlin's Paradox, that though countries could grow economically, that did not necessarily mean that its citizens would experience greater levels of happiness. In the decades that follow, many other people would challenge Easterlin's paradox, and what they would find is that although for some countries there is a time and period of growth in happiness with economic growth, that overall there is a point of stagnation that always happens. That no matter the more you have, it doesn't always mean more or better for your life. This isn't only true of countries. Researchers have found this to be true of our own lives as well. In fact, there was a study done in Princeton by Agnes Deaton and Daniel Kahneman in 2010 that found that people's happiness in relation to their income actually maximized at a certain point in our society. What they found in surveying incomes and homes across the U.S. is that once people reach an economic level or an income level of about $75,000 a year, that any increase in income over that resulted in zero increase in happiness. What Easterlin and the Princeton study challenge is a well-held cultural narrative that we are often encountered with all the time, which is simply the idea that the more we have, the happier we will be. Post-enlightenment, the West began to adopt a materialism mindset, which meant we saw and valued material things over non-material things. And over time, this grew to the point where we started to believe that happiness was located in the stuff that we ultimately have. This has become so well invested in our culture that we literally refer to ourselves now today as a consumer culture. And we self-identify, and our news media self-identifies us as consumers, that this now is the narrative of who we are and how our society and world is meant to function. That the more we buy, the more money we have, the more we do, the more stuff we own, the more opportunities we have, the better life will be. 
We are well indoctrinated that more equals the good life. In fact, you and I encounter this narrative about four to 10,000 times a day. That's what the average person encounters in advertisements in our society. And they reinforce that same narrative, that your life is not as good unless you have this product, this experience, this moment, that more equals the good life. But long before Easterlin or Princeton studies challenged that narrative, the Messiah Jesus actually challenged that same philosophy. In one of his most dynamic teachings on the subjects of money and possessions and the good life and what that all means, Jesus challenges our cultural assumptions and causes us to think, is more, more money, more stuff, actually where the good life is found? We actually see this teaching in in Luke chapter 12. You can look at it with me. We're going to pick up the story in verse 13 and begin to kind of unpack some things together. It starts this way. Someone in the crowd said to him, so Jesus is teaching. He's surrounded by a crowd at this point, and someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus is teaching, and a man comes up, and he asks Jesus to settle a dispute between him and his brother about receiving his inheritance. Now, it's not unusual for Jesus to come and ask, or for this man to come and ask Jesus this question. Often, rabbis in the first century would act as arbitrators in disputes and would give judgment on these sorts of issues. What's unusual is not the question, though it is actually unusual about the man is that he doesn't seek arbitration. He seeks Jesus to do what he wants him to do. He says, tell me, my brother, you do this. You decide. Jesus quickly dismisses him because Jesus knows that's not his role or purpose or his calling for what he ultimately wants to do. But he doesn't dismiss him without noticing the underlying issue for the man that he brings to the forefront. Simply that what lies beneath the man's request is his desire for more. And so Jesus gives the crowd an instruction. He says, be on your guard against all covetousness, or another way you would say that word is greed, that insatiable desire for more. Why? Well, Jesus gives the simple principle. Our lives aren't made up of our possession, that material things are not what always equal the good life. And to illustrate this, Jesus launches into a parable. Look at verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. 
Jesus tells a story that challenges our cultural narrative, that more doesn't always equal better, that though this man had experienced an incredible blessing in his life, his desire to hold that on to himself, to gain more and more, to build bigger barns and keep more and more, was not actually the wise and right and proper way to live. We often in our society adopt the same mindset as the man, that the more that we have, the better things will be. In America, the average American has 300,000 items in their home. That's the average. And we spend about $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential good. And what we do is we think because we've received economic blessing in our society, it's ours. And we should have the right to do with our stuff what we want. Just like the man. Notice how many times he uses the word I in this parable. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Verse 18, I will do this. I will tear down my bards. I will store up my grain. And then I will say to my soul. See where the man's focus is the whole time? It's on himself. It's my stuff. Why shouldn't I gather more? Why shouldn't I collect as much as I can? And we can have the same mentality. Do you know that the fastest segment of commercial real estate in the last four decades in America is self-storage facilities? There is enough self-storage facilities in our nation today that every single person could stand simultaneously and be covered by a self-storage facility right now but it's our stuff. And so we fill our houses and then we build other houses so we can fill those houses with more things. We've bought into this mindset, but God challenges the man in the passage. He calls him a fool. Now in our ears, that doesn't sound like too much of a challenge, but in those days, this is a strong statement. A fool was someone who had rejected God. For the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And a fool was someone who had abandoned God's ways. The foolish one is the, in the Proverbs is someone who has turned from the ways of God. And so this man is portrayed not as someone who is seeking God, but who has turned from him. And Jesus says in the parable that the man is foolish for two reasons. The first reason is that he didn't recognize that in the end, possessions mean very little in light of eternity. That when his soul was required of him, all that he had didn't really matter. It's kind of like the old adage, he who dies with the most toys still dies. And the second reason that he's a fool is that living for possession ultimately obstructed his relationship with God. Jesus says that the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God, that when we seek more and more, it actually affects and inhibits our relationship with God. And because of that, it leaves us empty and our lives empty. New Testament professor Daryl Brock says of this passage, Jesus' point is that the seeker of wealth ends up with an empty soul and an empty life. That at the end of our days, no matter what we have and possess, when our time on earth is done, it will be meaningless. So how do we combat this? If Jesus says the good life isn't ultimately found in our money and possessions, 
how are we called to live and how will we respond to the things that we have in our lives? Or maybe another way you could ask the question is, what does it actually look like to live out the way of Jesus in relation to our stuff? How do we experience that deeper, richer, better life that God has for us when it comes to things like money, possessions, time, and the material stuff that we do have in this life? Well, Jesus actually gives his disciples a completely different alternative. For Jesus, the good life ultimately starts and ends with God. God is the source of life and all that is good in the world. And that when our material possessions are brought in line with God and we live rich towards him, that's how we ultimately experience the good life. And how does that happen? Well, I would say that what Jesus points us towards is that part of the way that that happens is by embracing the spiritual habit of simplicity. Because when we practice the habit of simplicity, when we learn to live simple, it makes God our treasure. It allows us to live rich towards God, to make him the center and source of everything in our lives. Let me give you a definition of simplicity just to help you kind of understand this connection. It's adapted from Richard Foster and uh, Julia Roller in their book, In a Year with God. This is a great definition of simplicity. The spiritual habit of simplicity is a single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty and minimalism. I'd encourage you to write that down or pull your phone out and take a snapshot of the screen. But notice that there's two things in this definition. That the flow of the definition doesn't start with our stuff, but with our hearts. Because that's where Jesus starts with. Our hearts ultimately drive our lives. Or as theologian Tim Chester says, the root of all our behavior and emotions is the heart. What it trusts and what it treasures. And so simplicity begins with trusting God and making him the single focus, the treasure of our lives. And that as we do that, we begin to release our souls from the false promises of marketing and materialism, and we begin to experience the good life in God's kingdom. And as we do that, it results in a lifestyle of simplicity. The inward and outward parts of simplicity are essential to how this habit is practiced. Again, listen to Foster here where he says, both the inward and outward aspects of simplicity are essential. We deceive ourselves if we believe we can possess the inward reality without its having a profound effect on how we live. If you really have a heart of simplicity, it will affect the way you live and your lifestyle and what you do with your money and stuff. But to attempt to arrange an outward lifestyle of simplicity without the inward reality leads to deadly legalism. If you just live simply but your heart is not focused on God, then you just make rules for yourself that are not helpful to experience the good life. And so Jesus points us towards simplicity. To not lay up treasures for ourselves, but to be rich towards God. And that when we live rich towards God, when we make him our treasure, our single-hearted focus, man, that's where the good life is ultimately found. So how do we do this? How do we actually practice 
and make God the treasure of our lives. Well, Jesus gives us three ways through three commands in this passage on how we can live simply and make God our treasure. And we'll unpack these quickly. The first one comes right away in verse 22. Look at it. And he said to his disciples, so he's given his principle to the crowd, but now he turns to his disciples, those he's training in the way of the kingdom. And he says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? The first thing that Jesus teaches us of how we can pursue simplicity is to don't be anxious. That's the command he gets right from the beginning. And in many ways, I think Jesus gets right to the heart of the struggle that we often find in pursuing the habit of simplicity, the anxiety that we feel about giving up our stuff. And the key issue that we often have when it comes to our anxiety, why we tend to want more and more and more, is that we fear if we need something and don't have it, what will we do? We think that the more we have, the more secure and prepared and well-off we'll be. And so when we think of actually simplifying, it can stir in us an anxiety or a feeling of, but why need that? I need that. What if I don't have it? I'll give you a simple way of just how our hearts work this way. Think of any room in your house right now. Think of your favorite room. Maybe it's your kitchen, your bedroom, your living room, your office, your garage, whatever it is, Right? And think about getting rid of 50% of the stuff in that room instantly. I guarantee your heart will immediately go, but, but like, what if I need that pan? Like, but what if I need that suit I haven't worn in four years? Like, what if I, what if I need, what if I, like, I, I, like, we justify and feel a natural anxiety over the fact that what if our stuff just disappeared? But what Jesus reminds them is you don't have to be anxious because your God is a provider. He loves you and will provide for you. And he gives them two illustrations to consider. Consider unclean birds and lilies of the valley. If God provides for them, how much more will he provide for you? What Jesus is forcing his disciples to consider is what is real and true. The world of my anxiety the fear that I have over losing my stuff or the truth that God is a provider and that he gives us what we need. Not what we want, but what we need. And he challenges them at the end with that final phrase, O you of little faith. For Jesus, the issue of living rich towards God starts with the issue of trust. Do we trust God? Do we actually trust his provision? Do we trust that we will have what we need? 
David said, I've never seen the righteous go hungry. Do we trust that he actually loves us more than he loves birds or grass? Because if we do, then anxiety will be removed from the equation. When I think about this call to get, don't be anxious, I think I get a picture of this when I think about my kids. And when I think about how much my boys really worry about food or money or clothing or shelter or the basic necessities of life. Because here's the reality of how my kids worry about those things. They don't. I mean, they worry about other things like what Minecraft structure they're going to build next or like whatever's happening that day. But when it comes to the basic necessities of life, my my kids aren't worried about where their next meal is going to come from or whether or not they're going to have underwear in the morning. Why? Because by God's grace, they have parents that love them and are able to provide for them. And so their anxiety is removed because they trust us. See, anxiety is removed in the face of deep trust. And what Jesus says is, do you trust God? Do you trust him? Because we're called to that sort of trust. And if we trust him, we'll live simply and we won't be anxious about not having everything that everyone else has. He's a good father and he is. We can trust he'll provide and rid ourselves of the anxiety that's often caused by materialism. But if we don't have a foundation of trust, we'll never treasure God and we won't truly experience the good life he has for us. Jesus then moves to his second call in this in verse 29. He says, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. So Jesus says, don't seek after the things that the world seeks for. But he says this ultimately to highlight what we are to seek, which is the key in verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Trust God, don't be anxious, and then seek God's kingdom. You see, if we're actually to experience the good life, then what Jesus calls us to is to make him and his kingdom the ultimate priority of our lives. In the parallel passage in Matthew where Jesus gives a similar teaching, he says this verse this way, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. Seek his kingdom and God will ultimately provide. The heart of simplicity is seeking the kingdom first to make God the single-hearted focus of our lives. And to seek God's kingdom first is to not seek it and kind of seek other things. It's to seek it first, to treasure it, and to align everything else in our lives to that ultimate priority. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard says this about this, when it is said, seek first God's kingdom, eternity's goal is established for the human being as that which he should seek. If this is to be done, then the point above all is that the human being not seek something else first. That our eternal purpose is God and his kingdom. And that is what is to be sought over everything. And that when we seek God, When we align our lives and we live simply, God promises to provide. These things, the things you need, will be added to you. 
God is a provider. I remember the first time my wife and I experienced this reality. It was several years ago. I was um, working as an intern at a church, doing full-time school and full-time ministry, and my wife was teaching at a school about 40 minutes from our house. And we just had our first kid, Isaiah, and uh, life just got crazy and convoluted with driving and babysitters and money and housing and all this sort of stuff. And so it just got to the point where it was like too much. And so we decided one day we, we need to figure this out. And, it, and, and kind of, you know, it was the summer, my wife was off school, like, what are we going to do? And so we went out and we prayed and we sought the Lord and we journaled and we talked for a whole morning. And we felt like through that time that God was asking us to uh, have Alicia step away from her job. Now, that's not always the right decision for everyone, but that was the decision in our moment we felt like the Lord was leading us to, and he led us to this verse, seek first my kingdom. Now, Alicia, so Alicia gave notice to her school, and, uh, and part of the reason that we felt like we could take this step, because I was an intern, so I was making $14,000 a year, right? So that, that's all we had. But part of the reason we said is because the apartment that we had at the time was at a fixed rate. We didn't pay utilities, it was fixed. We were like, okay, I think we can manage this if we live really tight and really, Akron luckily is a much cheaper town than here. And so we like, were able to make it work. And so we were like, all right, Alicia notified her school she's not returning in the fall. A couple weeks go by and we get a call from the landlord. And he says, hey, uh, I just wanna let you know, someone else bought the house and uh, you're gonna have to move out. And we went into panic mode. Like, where are we going to do? Are you going to be able, I don't think you're going to be able to get your job back. They've already moved on. Like, how are we going to live? Are we going to find a different apartment? Like, it was like full on. And I remember the Lord bringing us back to this truth, because this verse had become key in our decision to say, okay, God, if we really seek, we feel like we're seeking your kingdom and doing what you asked us to do. Like, we need you to show up, because I don't know what, how you're going to make it. Well, through a connection with my parents, who were missionaries at the time, a church in the area found out about what was going on with our mom, with, through my mom, and they actually uh, said, hey, you know what, we've got this mission house that no one's living in for the next year, and uh, you know what, We're, why don't you guys just stay there for the next year while I finish my internship, and uh, the rent is just pay whatever you can afford. And so my rent and utilities cut in half that month, and we were able to make it through the rest of the year. Because God he provides. He provides in crazy ways. He provides through his church. He provides through a $20 bill given at a Delta counter, right? Like that's the sort of God he is. He gives us what we need. He's a provider and we can trust him. And when we make his kingdom the priority, he shows up every time. Every time. He shows up with what we need. And so the question that we have to ask is, is the kingdom of God a priority of our lives? When other things become a priority, more than the kingdom of God, that's where worry and anxiety are found. That's where we begin to lack faith. And sometimes we need to recalibrate and ask, what would it look like to give God the priority in my life, my money, my time, my stuff. I need to continue to do that regularly. And do I trust that if I'm seeking the kingdom, God will provide? And then as God provides, we should respond. And it's the third thing that Jesus reminds us in this passage. Look at verse 32. Fear not, little flock, 
For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do you hear the life Jesus wants to lead you out of in this passage? Fear not. Jesus wants to lead you out of a life of anxiety, faithlessness, worry, and fear. Living simply helps make God our treasure and leads leads us away from the things that cause so much internal turmoil in our lives. Jesus wants to lead us towards the good life. It's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give you himself. And so Jesus gets really practical then. See, seeking the kingdom isn't just about changing our hearts, but it's also about allowing it to impact our lives. And this is what he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. You see, if we're to genuinely live rich towards God, to embrace a lifestyle of simplicity, then we need to also give generously. Jesus can't get more practical than this in terms of simplicity. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. If you want a practical way to live simply, there it is. Don't hoard your stuff. Sell it. Don't hoard your money. Give it. Because a lifestyle of simplicity leads to radical generosity. Not just giving our, of our excess, but living in such a way where we actually relieve ourselves at times of our possessions in order to pursue greater generosity. That single-hearted focus on the kingdom that removes anxiety, that makes God our treasure, results in people who live in a radically generous way in the world, who invest not in the stuff of the world, but invest their lives in people and the kingdom of God and allocate their resources in line with the treasure of their hearts, God's kingdom. Right? I mean, that's the principle Jesus gives that he roots this call in in verse 34. Look at it. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Notice the order. Jesus didn't say where your heart will be, that's where your treasure will be. He said where your treasure is. What you do with your stuff matters to your heart. In living simply, there's always the balance between our inward reality and our outward lifestyle, that those things are meant to be aligned and that part of the way we align our, our hearts is what we do with our money. When we're invested of the kingdom of the world, it results in the heart issues of anxiety and worry and fear. But when our financial investment is in the kingdom of God, we experience freedom and provision, peace and love. William McDonald says this of this passage in a challenging word. He says, This radical financial policy is based on the underlying principle that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your money is in a safe deposit box, then your heart and desire are, are also there. If your treasures are in heaven, your interests will be centered there. This teaching forces us to decide whether Jesus meant what he said. If he did, then we face the question, what are we going to do with our earthly treasures? If he didn't, then we face the question, what are we going to do with our Bible? If this is the call, the question is, will we then follow in both our hearts and our lifestyle? Do you pursue giving generously? If you want to apply this, start simply just with your money. 
and ask the question, how can I begin to free up some of my finances to be more generous with needs I see around me? Maybe take the next step and look at your stuff and say, are there things that I don't need that I can bless someone with or sell and give that money to someone who needs it more than I do? Maybe have a conversation with your life group and say, is there a way we can share resources or simplify our lives together in order to live more generously as a community? You don't have to overhaul everything today, right? Start small, start small, but do something. And what you'll begin to find is that the good life, it isn't in what you possess. It isn't in the pursuit of more. And as you do that, what you will find is that God is the ultimate treasure that you're actually after. You see, the call to the habit of simplicity is to remind ourselves that God is the end. He is what we're after. He is where the good life is found. And that when we treasure him, when we make him our priority, when we have that single-hearted focus and we live rich towards him and use our resources for his kingdom— then we begin to experience all that he is for us. And we begin to experience the good life. The call to simplicity is not a call to make simplicity the end in itself, but to make it a means by which you pursue God as the end and purpose of your life. Don't forget that. Johnny Ive was the chief design uh, officer for uh, Apple for the last several decades. He left in 2019, but he's responsible for many of the pro Apple products that we know and use today, from their computers to the watches to their phones. And Johnny Ive had a simple, pretty design philosophy. He really believed in beauty and simplicity. But his radical commitment often left him in a place where he did both great things and some not-so-great things. In fact, one uh, tech journalist uh, in an article in One Zero named Charles Arthur highlighted the trouble in Ives' philosophy and approach. Because sometimes he would strive to pursue simplicity as an end and not a means. And so while at times it made great products, sometimes it made terribly unfunctional products. If any of you had an old iMac with a hockey puck mouse, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or if you've ever tried to use the Apple TV remote that you feel like you can barely hold in your hand, it's because he would pursue at times simplicity at the end, at the expense of the function for the user. And sure, it was great in some moments, but it was terrible in others. He forgot that simplicity is a means in design, not the end itself. And the call that we have to practice the habit of simplicity is not to make simplicity the goal. God is the goal. Our desire to live simply is so that we can trust and treasure him more. Don't pursue minimalism. Don't pursue simplicity just for our own sake. Pursue it so you can live rich towards God. Because listen, the good life that you're searching for, that your heart longs for, that you feel drawn and pulled toward, it's only found in God and it only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It starts with trusting Jesus, placing your faith in him. 
and then letting him be your teacher, your guide, to show you how you can live simply so your heart has that singular focus on God and his kingdom that affects your life and frees you from the worry and anxiety and fear and struggle that so many experience in our society. Make God your treasure. If you've never made God your treasure, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do that today. Or maybe you've been living with that mindset of more and more and more and accumulation. Free yourself of that. Make God your treasure. Learn to live rich towards him by learning to live simple. Let me pray for us. God, I am grateful this morning really for the reality of who you are. That you are a God that satisfies our hearts. That you are an end worth pursuing. That you are where all that is good in life is found. Thank you that you're worthy of our hearts and our lives. And God, we confess that so easily my own heart can want to seek to trust or treasure something less than you some man-made thing, some earthly pursuit, some worldly philosophy. But we're reminded today through your word, Lord, that those things are empty, they're meaningless. In light of eternity, the stuff we have just simply doesn't matter. And yet we're reminded this morning that you've made a way for us to experience all that you are. That through trusting in Jesus, embracing his path and his ways, we can begin to live and experience the life of the kingdom now, a life that will carry on into eternity where we will experience you forever. And so God, I pray for those present this morning in this place. I pray that you, by your spirit, would help them to make Christ the chief treasure and focus of their even now as we sing and worship in response to your word, that you would begin stirring our love, our hearts, our eyes, our mind towards him to make him our goal, to make him our single-hearted focus. Move now, we invite you to do by your spirit. It's in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Thank you for joining us today as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.